It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for May 2023. Now, if there was one song which typified this month for me, it was this one. Along with this chant. Yes, May 23 was the coronation of King Charles III, an extravaganza of opulence, which I'm delighted to say not many people in Scotland seem to be very interested in at all. If you listened to our podcast last week, you'll know that 20,000 or more of us spent Coronation Day demonstrating in Glasgow. There was also a demonstration on Calton Hill in Edinburgh. Now, next week's podcast is going to be the best of the speeches from Calton Hill, so I won't spoil the surprise. But one piece from that demonstration that I've held back for bits and pieces was George Gunn, the poet. So we're going to start off this month's bits and pieces with poet George Gunn. Hello, I'm not a politician. I'm a poet. So I'm going to give you a poem, an ode to the Scottish Republic here on this historic day. My allegiance is to the Scottish people, to all people, to be called a British subject and to swear allegiance to a king while my country has no place among nations is to be a ghost and to bear disgrace It is the dispossession of all citizens of our future republic. To see the number of the poor increase while 100 million and more is spent to put a crown on a coof is to shame our democracy. To see her discarded in the gutter in a coat of rags, her feet in ruins. Hame, hame, hame. Him would I be, him, him, him in my own country, with the birk and the pine and the bonny rowan tree, ah, blooming fair, in my own country. The Lord of Misrule in the summer tents ponders momentarily current events, stealing our destiny as he steals our rents, but no more, no more. For the king will see our republic rising up out of the ground, seeking a new simplicity. The republican wind blows through the liberty tree. No king can escape the coming melee. Him, 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 him would I be. Him, him, him in my own country. When the new moon will be born, on the carrying stream, so that we may be the republic of the people's desire. We make the song, we catch the fire, free of tyranny. I can taste the sweet salt of freedom on my tongue. As we gather here to proclaim that which is obvious to the young, let us change our elegy into him. Remake it all. Let us not fail again. 
in our own country. And for the love of our people, let us make our Scottish Republic and make it strong. And one of the many reasons why we are right to be concerned about the actions of the monarchy in our democracy is the lack of transparency over the Crown or the Royal Family's ability to influence legislation. And here Lorna Slater very briefly uh, describes what that relationship is with Holyrood and the Royal Family. While we maintain the principle of one person, one vote, vast wealth has the ability to distort where power lies. And when we have one family who can inherit that vast wealth without paying inheritance taxes, without paying the taxes that every single one of us would have to pay to contribute to our public services, that exceptionalism of one family, that is not harmless. Not only does the king get earlier insight into all legislation that is passed in Scotland, but he has a direct channel to lobby for changes to that legislation. And as a government minister, I am not able to either confirm or deny that the king has lobbied me or my officials for change to that legislation. That is not a harmless anachronism. That is a twisting of unaccountable power power and wealth that is being handed down in a one particular family to rule over us. But what comes down to the fundamental question, are we the subjects of a sovereign? Do we do his will? Or are the people sovereign? And does our government serve us? And just shortly before the coronation, the organisation Our Republic launched a petition to Holyrood to find out on how many occasions had the royal family actually lobbied to change Scottish legislation. This petition got sufficient signatures to be put before the Holyrood Petitions Commission, and here was their response. Uh, our first new petition is from uh, Tristan Gray on behalf of Our Republic and calls on the Scottish Parliament to urge the Scottish Government to legislate to abolish <laughs> adaptations and exemptions to legislation requested by the monarchy and ensure all future communications between the monarch, Scottish Government, Scottish Parliament with representatives of the monarchy uh, are fully transparent and public, to publish details of all cases where laws have been adapted at the request of the monarchy and to prevent any such alterations to our laws from being implemented in the future. Um, the Scottish Government's response to the petition states that seeking Crown consent is a requirement act under the Scotland Act 1998 and that it is required to follow the same rules that apply to UK bills when it comes to seeking consent from the Royal Household. Uh, and for the avoidance of doubt, the Scotland Act is out with the uh, responsibility of the Parliament here. On the issue of sharing correspondence between the monarchy, Scottish Government and Scottish Parliament, the response notes the importance of confidentiality in order to hold free and frank discussions. And the Scottish Government also states that it does not record how bills have changed as they have been developed or where stakeholders have queried aspects of that legislation, uh, presumably at all. Do members have any questions or suggestions in view of the uh, directive response we have received from the Scottish Government? 
Alexander Stewart. Uh, thank you, Convener. Uh, you've already explained really where our position is on this, and, and I, I think that the, the petitioner must understand that too, that uh, in reality there is there's very little uh, that can be really achieved uh, uh, under the circumstances. So uh, I, I don't think we have any other course but to, uh, to close the petition because uh, the Scottish Parliament cannot uh, pass legislation to remove the legal requirements as seen with the consent. Uh, and according to the Scottish Government correspondence we've already had, uh, that the Royal Households uh, is confidential and such a confidentiality is not recognised and respected in, in, in order to maintain the ability to hold free and frank discussions. Uh, and according to the Scottish Government, also uh, details of this case where laws have been adapted uh, at the request of the monarchy cannot be provided as the Scottish Government does not record such bills. So I think for all of those reasons, uh, we acknowledge the, uh, the petition itself, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think we can do anything else uh, but close the petition under these circumstances. Uh, so, uh, I thank the petitioner for raising the petition, but uh, as you will understand, um, it appears there's no open route for the committee to take forward the aims of the petition. Which, again, begs the question, are Scots sovereign? And if so, if we are, what can we do with that sovereignty? We apparently have the right to choose what form of government best suits our needs and to get rid of monarchs who don't do what we want them to do and yet we can't even ask this one questions or even see what changes he's making to our laws. Doesn't sound like very sovereign sovereignty to me. Still on the topic of Coronation Day, those of you who listened to our podcast last week will have heard a selection of the speeches from the Orlando One Banner Rally there were two other speakers that caught my interest that I just didn't have time to add into that show, but I'm going to add them in here. One is Jim Cassidy from Trade Unionists for Independence, and the other is Anne Mullen from NHS for Yes. And they both had useful points to make, I think. So first, Jim Cassidy. Also not with us today are many of my trade union colleagues who are attending the Lothian's Trade Union Rally in Edinburgh. They're marching to celebrate the work done by the trade unions across the world and who have worked to give us many of the terms and conditions that we now enjoy today. Shorter working weeks, days off, paid leave, sick pay and pensions were not gifts bestowed on us by the great and the good. These are rights which had to be dragged from wealthy businessmen and women who got immeasurably rich by harnessing the efforts and the energy of people like you and people like me, the working class. But those rights are under attack. Day after day, the Tories plot and plan to take away your rights. They want a minimum wage, zero-hour workforce. They want to make it easy to get rid of you without any comeback. They want a workforce who are afraid to answer them back. They want a workforce who are afraid to get sick. And they want a workforce stripped of their right to strike. And they are winning. The minimum service levels bill may have been pushed back by the House of Lords in England, but ultimately the Tory government can and will bring it back. And it will be enacted, removing the right to strike from hundreds of thousands of people across the country. And if you cannot strike, then what are you? You're a slave, that's what you are. So what can you do? Well, for starters, join a union. Gain the protection that your trade union provides and help to organise 
and ensure that you and your fellow workers get the pay, terms and conditions that you deserve, not what your bosses think that they can get away with giving you. And when you do join your union, get active. By linking arms with the Tories in 2014, some trade unions caused immeasurable damage to, our, uh, to the, the trade union movement. So be the voice of the independence movement in your union and never let that happen again. Otherwise, the parcel of rogues in the Labour Party will speak on your behalf and they won't be speaking in your interest. In the short term, the election of a Labour government in Westminster might provide some respite from this by reversing some legislation, but be under no illusions. The Tories will be back and they can reverse anything that the Labour Party does. Of course, we wouldn't be in this mess if the British Nationalist Labour Party in Scotland hadn't blocked the devolution of employment legislation under the Smith Commission in 2014. But that's a small print of better together that they would rather you forget. If you take one thing away from today, it's remember this, don't fall for Labour's false promises. This is Anne Mullen from NHS for Yes. Um, I'm a doctor, I've worked in the NHS for 35 years, training initially in hospitals but spending most of my career in general practice. Uh, and today I'm speaking on behalf of NHS for Yes and you can find us on Facebook. Please join us. The NHS, just to remind us all, stands for universal, equitable, comprehensive, high quality healthcare free the point of delivery and its values are relevant today as they were in its exception over 70 years ago. So now let's consider the NHS in Scotland under the current arrangement within the UK. The outsourcing of NHS to private companies has accelerated over the last 10 years with two core pieces of legislation introduced in England, the Health and Social Care Bill 2012 and the Health and Care Act 2022 which means that the NHS will be a mere shell of its former self. Scotland will not be able to escape that, no matter how much we stick our heads in the sand. And its main function will be to dole out contracts to favoured partners. Professor Alison Pollock has written extensively on this subject and asserts that the NHS will be reduced to a public funding stream and a logo. And you could all ask yourself, so what? Doesn't a private component give better outcomes and isn't the NHS unaffordable anyway? And the answer, of course, to both of these questions is a resounding no. Evidence published in the leading medical journal, The Lancet, suggests that private sector outsourcing corresponds with significantly increased rates of treatable mortality. Thank you. It also impacts on the clinician-patient relationship, which is crucial to continuity of care, and also the goodwill within the health service, but rarely factored into the value of the health service. Every Doctor UK campaign group advocates that shareholders shouldn't be part of our public healthcare conversations and private companies should not be skimming a profit from the NHS. Outsourcing also fragments the service across the country, creating a postcode lottery where patients receive differing levels of care and access to treatment and services based on their location. This is an expression of the inverse care law coined by Julian Tudor Hart, a GP in Wales, where people who need health care are least likely to receive it. 
And if you'd like to watch the entirety of all the speeches from All Under One Banner, the best place to get them is on Independence Live's YouTube channel, where the live stream from the whole event is available. Now, as is always the case for all under one banner marches, there were no arrests and the police engaged in good spirit with us and provided what I would consider responsible community policing, kept us safe. But that wasn't the case in London, where the laws in England and Wales that have been brought in by the Tories restrict protest to an extent that seems to have bordered into thought crime the very idea that you might be thinking about causing a disruption is grounds for arrest, which is an astonishing leap away from the concept of the right to peaceful protest. Tommy Shepherd, speaking from the Calton Hill rally. I think it's very important that we make a statement in favour of democracy and saying that it's time to reform the uh, structure of government that we have, where we have an unelected head of state uh, who is unaccountable to the people in the country. And uh, I strongly believe that we ought to move in the uh, direction of a democratic constitution. And with other colleagues, I'm here today making that point. Um, There was recent polling just this past week that shows that in Scotland... um, the public opinion is just um, against that position. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, actually, the opinion has been changing in recent years. I mean, if you look at change even in the last 12 months, it's quite significant. Opinion is now divided 50-50 pretty much in Scotland in terms of whether the monarchy should continue. But if you look at people under 35, there's a clear majority now saying that we need reform, we need an elected head of state, and we need to modernise our constitution so that it becomes one of democracy. And what do you say to those who say, look, the coronation is great fun, it's a coming together of the country, it's a a festival of of what it means to be British. Are you just raining on the parade? No, I don't. You see, I don't agree with that. I think actually the festivities that they're having today in in London and the the lavish uh, and almost obscene amount of money that's being spent on it, somewhere north of £100 million, I think at a time of a cost of living crisis where many of King Charles' subjects are, are struggling to pay their bills and their children are going to bed hungry, now is not the time for such lavish excess. This, after, this coronation celebration, after all, didn't need to happen at all. Charles is already king. The paperwork could have been signed in a back office at any time over the last six months. So this is just for show. It's a public relations exercise for the royal household. And the very bad news for them is I think it's backfiring. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Next, we're heading off down to Westminster to see what's been happening there. And just before we do, I just want to make a point that Scottish Independence Podcast is not party political. We passionately believe in independence, but we are not allied with any political party. I'm not a member of any political party. And we try and reflect what we think will be of interest to people. So we will continue to try and showcase the best of Scottish politics wherever we find it, whatever party we find it in. So back to Westminster, where Alison Thulis had managed to get an urgent question raised about the policing of the London event. 
Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The UN Commissioner for Human Rights has said that the Public Order Act is incompatible with the right to freedom of expression, peaceful assembly and association. It is deeply disappointing to hear Labour and the Conservatives now both support wedded to uh, this legislation that uh, undermines our right to protest. Graham Smith, the CEO of Republic, has said that these arrests are a direct attack on our democracy and the fundamental rights of every person in the country. He further says the right to protest peacefully in the UK no longer exists. Instead, we have a freedom to protest that is contingent on the political decisions made by ministers and senior police officers. That is entirely unacceptable. And in reading Sir Mark Rowley's statement that he has put out, he says, having reviewed the evidence and potential lines of inquiry, we do not judge that we will be able to prove criminal intent beyond all reasonable doubt. So these arrests were not necessary. And further, Sir Mark Rowley says he supports the officer's actions in this unique, fast-moving operational context, which means that if similar circumstances occurred, there is no uh, certainty that this would not just happen again. So will the, uh, the Minister tell me further what protections people can expect when they, in good faith, engage uh, with authorities before protests to prevent this kind of thing happening, to find it happen again? And is he concerned that journalist, a journalist was amongst those arrested? Speaker, the Minister just said that the right to peaceful protest is sacrosanct and that no one would seek to undermine it. But I would put it to him that that is exactly and precisely what his government has just done. Ministers are criminalising protest. And just because some people were allowed to go ahead and protest does not mitigate against the fact that a number of them were not. And if I could just correct the Minister, those who were arrested and kept uh, in were not causing an obstruction, which is presumably exactly why the police then went to apologise to them afterwards. So doesn't this show that the powers the government has handed to the police are dangerously broad, liable to gross misuse, as many of us have pointed out, and can I urge him again to urgently review this piece of legislation? Kirsty Nelson. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I, I think that the Minister has a, a real brass neck. The, the, the Tory government have brought in this most draconian legislation, and then he, he's in here telling us that the police are operationally independent of the government, as if it's absolutely nothing to do with their actions. The, the Human, Human Rights Watch have said that what we saw was something that you'd expect to see in Moscow, not London. And I wonder if he would agree with me that given that only reportedly 6% of those who were arrested for protesting against the coronation were actually charged with anything at all, that this new legislation is absolutely nothing but an advert for how to impede people's right to protest. And that theme was continued by Deirdre Brock when she came face to face with Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House, who of course seems to have been the unexpected star of the proceedings in London. I add my congratulations to the leader for her role at the coronation. Commendable upper body strength on show there, uh, and with the added strain of having to remain silent virtually all afternoon. So well done, her. Now, maybe, though, it was a speak softly and carry a big sword moment, as it appears carrying a lethal weapon and wearing an imperial-style outfit now makes her favourite to be the next Tory leader. Uh, was it the sword of Damocles she was clutching? I'm minded of that old Monty Python skit, though, something about strange women distributing swords being no basis for a system of government. 
But did the leader's somewhat authoritarian look on Saturday reflect the new and unnerving Braverman law, which apparently allows for arresting people even for thinking about protesting? So can we have a debate on the Thought Police and on whether guidance for that hastily delivered act might be tightened up after those recent unfortunate arrests? Now, speaking of horrible bills, I see Labor, despite the urging of the Archbishop of Canterbury, continues to cleave to this government's nasty hostile environment policies. Is it any wonder? Mr Deputy Speaker, that Labour seemingly can't, even after 13 years of the most incompetent, chaotic series of Tory governments there perhaps has ever been, still can't apparently win an outright majority. Yet Labour claims they won't entertain the idea of cooperation agreements with the SNP, despite the fact we will speak to anyone progressive to lock the Tories out of number 10. The thing is, Mr Deputy Speaker, if we had a fair electoral system, parties would often have to work in partnership with each other, as they do in many other grown-up democracies across the world. So can we have a debate on proportional representation and fair voting so we can ask why it is the Tories and Labour parties support the antiquated first-past-the-post system that prolongs the establishment duopoly we see year after dreary year in this place? Oops, I believe I've answered my own question there, Mr Deputy Speaker. Probably just as well, because although we all enjoyed, uh, really, the Leader of the House's starring role at the weekend, I would once again gently remind her her day job is to answer for the conduct of her own government, not simply give her view on the governments of other countries for use on social media. If she could stick to the day job in this, I'd be very grateful. Thank you, um, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, Well, can I first of all thank the the Honourable Lady um, for for, uh, her compliments and to say it is is good to see uh, her back in her place. I am very aware that my most successful role in my career to date has been when I have been silent, um, and uh, that has not not been uh, uh, lost on me. And Stephen Flynn hammered it home at Prime Minister's Questions. Although it seems the Speaker still hasn't caught up with the fact that Stephen Flynn is the leader of the SNP at Westminster. SNP spokesperson Stephen Flynn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. If the Prime Minister was to go to the boot of his Land Rover and pull out some placards which said, Save our nom-doms, would he expect to be arrested by the police? (laughs) Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, can I first put on record my thanks to the police for all their hard work over the weekend? ensuring that the coronation was a success. Now, look, on, on this issue, Mr Speaker, we believe the police should have powers to make sure that they can protect the public from unnecessary and serious disruption. I respectfully recognise that the Honourable Gentleman disagrees with our position. I guess the question for both of us is what does the Honourable Leader of the Opposition think about this? Because it's quite hard to keep up. Can, can, I, can I just remind the Prime Minister? It's Prime Minister's questions for him to answer, not asking what... Not for what the opposition is doing. Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, what we're talking about here is that nurses strike, doctors protest, firefighters protest, and of course, of course, Republicans protest as well. And they do so because it's a fundamental right within our democracy to be able to protest. So is the Prime Minister seriously saying that moving forward you can have your rights but only on his terms. 
And Stephen Flynn continues to impress it for Prime Minister's questions with short, often quite pointed questions, uh, sometimes even skewering Sunak and Starmer with the same question. Mr Speaker, in 2010, David Cameron convinced Nick Clegg to drop his pledge on university tuition fees. Does the Prime Minister intend to take the credit for convincing the leader of the Labour Party to do likewise? Mr Speaker, for the avoidance of any doubt, the Liberal Democrats don't believe in abolishing tuition fees. The Conservatives don't believe in abolishing tuition fees. And of course, the Labour Party, now with their own Nick Clegg moment, don't believe in abolishing tuition fees either. But Mr Speaker, is it, is it not the case that the main Westminster parties don't offer young, offer young people any hope at all, do they? Yeah. Can I ask the Prime Minister to outline the safe and legal route available to a child refugee seeking to flee Sudan and come to the United Kingdom. Well, Mr Speaker, as I outlined earlier, our priority in Sudan, first and foremost, was to evacuate our diplomats and their families, which I'm very pleased. We were one of the first countries to be able to do, Mr Speaker. And since yesterday, we've been conducting a large-scale evacuation of British nationals. We have some of the largest numbers of British nationals on the ground, and rightly, and I'm sure the whole House will agree with me, that it is reasonable, legal and fair to prioritise those most vulnerable families, particularly those with elderly people in them, medical conditions, but also children, Mr Speaker. That's what we're in the process of doing, and I pay tribute to all those who are making it possible. Leader of the SNP. Mr Speaker, to be clear, and I think everyone in the House is aware of this, children in Sudan are already dying. Now, whether it's a Tory slogan to stop the boats or a Labour slogan to stop small boats, we need some more humanity in this debate, rather than the race to the bottom, which we see here today. So can I ask the Prime Minister, now that he has confirmed that there is no safe and legal route, will he therefore confirm that it would be his government's intention to detain and deport a child refugee who flees Sudan and comes to the United Kingdom? It's not just the Scottish audiences that appreciate Stephen Flynn's performance at PMQs. I saw a comment in The Guardian the other day um, asking, could Stephen Flynn please be given as many questions as he wants at PMQ? You're listening to Bits and Pieces. The other horrifying piece of legislation making its way through Westminster at the moment is to do with the illegal migration bill, by which they really mean asylum seeking, which is not illegal. As the bill made its way through the House of Lords, Balanus Helena Kennedy, we know her as, had this to say. Only days ago, the King made solemn commitments to justice, to equity and to mercy. And here we are dismissing those values in this bill. I find it repugnant to hear the spurious use of market force values as an argument for this bill, that the need to crush traffickers, the supply side, involves having to crush demand, as though the demand were not human beings with needs, often people who have been persecuted, people who have watched other members of their family being slaughtered, 
who have suffered torture themselves, who have witnessed the women in their family being raped. But we have to crush demand. So to devise a scheme as cruel and as vicious as possible is necessary to deflect people from crossing. We have to devise a scheme that has no due process, which has been one of the fundamentals in our rule of law. And we are going to lump together those who are asylum seekers with possibly those amongst them who might be simply here to better themselves, which uh, Lord Frost has just talked about, but described those people as being asylum seekers. The conflation between those who might be coming for economic reasons and those who are asylum seekers fleeing persecution is one of the problems about this bill. I really wanted to speak to the fact that this bill is having a huge impact on our global reputation. I am the director of an institute for the International Bar Association, and so I travel to conferences uh, regularly. I was only last week at the UN in New York. And judges and lawyers talk to me about their concerns about what is happening around issues of law in our country. They say, what's happening to Britain? The Britain has led the world in championing the rule of law that was the flagship nation in creating the rules-based order after World War II, that drafted the, the European Convention on Human Rights, was key to so many conventions, including the Refugee Convention, and created, in fact, the, 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 the model for the modern slavery legislation that's being taken up in other countries too. We've always looked to Britain, they say, as a beacon that we've all been persuading our countries to follow. But what's happening? And so we're putting at risk that reputation. Our statute, stat, stature in the world will be greatly damaged by bills like this and our dismissal of our treaty obligations, our commitment to international law. And the fear that is expressed is that Britain, by showing a reckless disregard for law, will in fact bring about the collapse of that rules-based system, because other countries' authoritarianism is growing, as we know, in so many places, will be only too happy to follow suit. And I remind us all of the law of unintended consequences, that once you start unravelling these things, like, for example, Rule 39, which allows, has allowed us to, we've used it ourselves since the year 2005. We've, we've used it only last year in relation to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it will be used as evidence that they have failed to comply with it when we come to bring people like Putin before international courts for war crimes. So please don't unravel law, which has been so important in creating a unity across the globe, which has been so vital in, in securing justice and uh, uh, in our attempts to secure peace. So I advocate what the Archbishop has advocated, which is that we actually cling to those international uh, uh, obligations and sets of principles, that we make use of them and engage with other countries to try and meet the challenges here, and that we set up proper, swift systems to determine who are asylum seekers and who are not. And I hope this bill will be amended out of existence because it is unworkable, it's unlawful, and it is immoral, I say to all of you. And, uh, we have to ask ourselves, is this what we're standing for in the world? 
I'm often impressed with the very conciliatory and reasonable tone that Alan Smith takes in debates. And here he is again, making some very clear points, but in a courteous way. Uh, This was in a debate about overseas territories. I think it's safe to say that the SNP's worldview in this stuff is different to many of the views that we've heard from colleagues today. Uh, Global Britain is not our project. The SNP, our vision of Scotland's future, best of Scotland's best future, is an independent state back into the European Union, acceding into NATO and indeed acceding into the Commonwealth in our own right. So we recognise that the UK is the successor state for a lot of the relationships we've been talking about today, and our primary interaction with the overseas territories would be via the Commonwealth frameworks and indeed our close friendly relationship with the UK post-independence. But where I say that Global Britain isn't our project, it is also worth stressing to colleagues, I don't wish it harm. The overseas territories are important partners. The UK is going to be an important partner for an independent Scotland. So even if our worldview comes to pass, and I accept many colleagues don't want to see that happen, we want to see the overseas territories do well. And we want to see a deep and flourishing partnership between the UK and indeed those overseas territories. And self-determination is part of the SNP's DNA. We would go further even than the United Nations does. We believe that the right of people to choose their government and choose their constitutional arrangements is absolutely fundamental to democracy. We recognise the right to self-determination under the UN Charter is limited. It's limited to cases of oppression, a post-colonial setting and indeed invasion. But we would go further in that. So we would utterly agree with colleagues who have expressed support for the overseas territory's right to self-determination. And I'd also recognise that where that right to self-determination has a right to independence, it also has a right to decide to be a British Overseas Territory and have whatever representation they want to have within this framework. And I think there are a number of ways in which that could be uh, ameliorated and improved. But I deeply respect the choice of Overseas Territories to have whatever status they want and whatever representation they want as part of the British family. And I hope members would accept me on my good, good faith when I say that. But with that, that right comes responsibilities. And I think it is important that uh, we take stock of the relationship with the overseas territories. The coronation of the new king is, I think, a good opportunity to do that. That's a a stock-taking exercise is taken across a number of the overseas territories themselves. We also need to take proper note of uh, the choices that our uh, decisions make upon them. And I couldn't agree better that uh, the gentleman that said that Brexit has not been kind to the overseas territories. Now, we fundamentally agree on that point. Leaving the EU in the way that we did has upset the constitutional balance within the devolved settlement for Scotland, Wales, England, uh, Northern Ireland and uh, indeed London. All parts of the constitutional furniture within the UK were predicated upon all of us being within the customs union, the single market and indeed the EU. That has been changed. And it's also been changed for the overseas territories. We've heard much mention of Gibraltar. I had a number of talks with the Gibraltarian government when I was a member of the European Parliament trying to find some solutions for them. But likewise, fisheries quotas for the Falkland Islands and lots of other things besides have not had the degree of attention that they deserve from this place. And I think there's a job for all of us to improve on that. I'd also very much agree with the point the Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee made that if they're not foreign, dealing with them via the Foreign Office apparatus seems to be missing something of a trick. And I would suggest that Denmark and France particularly have ways of interacting with their overseas territories, which I think would bear quite a bit of analysis from the FCDO and indeed the UK government and more widely in terms of finding new ways of doing this, but always accepting that it's up to the overseas territory to decide the interaction that they want and they deserve. It's not for anyone to tell them what it should be. But policy 
uh, impact and policy coherence is deeply important. And friends can speak honestly to friends, and I think it's also worth us recognising that a number of the overseas territories are globally recognised industrial tax evasion centres. And I think there are implications for us, especially as we see with the consequences of the Russian invasion, stepping up of the invasion into Ukraine, that there's also a role in sanctions busting there as well. And I think policy coherence is really important that it is ensured. I've mentioned from this space a number of points uh, as we were sanctioning Russian oligarchs, as we were sanctioning Russian organisations and seizing dirty money. The overseas territories have a really important role to play in that as well. So I would pick up on comments of the need for uh, a register of beneficial interests to the Minister. I think that's a deeply important thing for transparency at home, but it also is for abroad as well in the overseas. Happily. Very serious allegation that some British overseas territories are tax havens or being used in some nefarious way uh, for, for funds. Which ones is he referring to and what evidence does he have for that? I was going to be more polite and say that some are and uh, indeed some aren't, but if he wants some statistics, in February 2022, Transparency International linked 830 million worth of property in the overseas territories and crown dependencies to individuals close to Russian President Vladimir Putin. In 2018, Global Witness said that £34 billion pounds was currently invested by Russians with links to the Russian government in overseas territories. The Global Witness report uh, of uh, 2018 also said that uh, the total of £68.5 billion in foreign direct investment from Russian residents had been directed towards the overseas territories from 2007 to 2016. Now, I acknowledge progress has been made by some of the overseas territories, but we also must speak frankly to our friends, and there is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Kimi Badenoch also finally relented on the bonfire of the EU legislation, largely because it seems to have finally sunk in that there is so much of it they couldn't possibly put the sunset clause in that they had proposed that all EU legislation suddenly dies at a certain point. But... Kemi made the mistake of announcing that U-turn to the press before she brought it to Parliament. For once, the Speaker managed to find some backbone, and he wasn't having it. Before we begin the urgent question, I know that it is highly regrettable that the Government decided not to offer an oral statement on this matter yesterday. Given the importance of this announcement, on such matters, full engagement with Parliament and its committees is essential. Before I call the Chair, I will remind the Government we are elected to hear it first, not to read it in the Telegraph, and certainly not a WMS is satisfactory on such an important matter. Hence, that I would always say I am now going to call the Chair of the European Scrutiny Committee to ask the urgent question. Sir William Cash. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, will the Secretary of State make a statement regarding the question of her failure to come to the House before she made the written ministerial statement and the press article today in the Daily Telegraph? Uh, Thank you, Mr. Mr. Speaker. Uh, I'm very sorry that the sequencing uh, that we chose was not to your satisfaction. I was... (laughs) Order, 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 order. That is totally not acceptable. No. Who do you think you're speaking to, Secretary of State? I think we need to understand each other. 
I am the defender of this House and these benches on both sides. I am not going to be spoken to by a Secretary of State who is absolutely not accepting my ruling. Take it with good grace and accept it that members should hear it first, not a WMS or what you decide. These members have been elected by their constituents and they have the right to hear it first. And it is time this government recognised we're all elected, we're all members of Parliament and use the correct manners. Secretary of State. Mr Speaker, I apologise. What I was trying to say was that I'm very sorry that I did not meet the standards uh, which you expect of uh, Secretaries of State. Forgive my language. But um, what I have been trying to do is make sure that I provide as much clarity as possible. So I am actually very pleased to be coming to the House uh, to speak. I'm very pleased to be coming to the House to speak uh, on this issue. I've, uh, I have um, written, a, uh, written ministerial statements to explain that yesterday we tabled an amendment to the retained EU law bill that amends the operation of the sunset in clause one of the bill. The Tories were also being taken to task by Carolyn Lucas about the Rosebank oilfield proposals. The Prime Minister has previously declared, and I quote, my daughter is the climate change champion in our house. I wonder if he's asked her what she thinks about Rosebank, the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea, which would blow climate targets, create more emissions than 28 of the world's poorest countries combined, involve the obscene transfer of £4 billion of taxpayers' money to a Norwegian energy firm, Equinor, and do nothing for energy security since the vast majority of the oil will be exported. If he gives it the green light, will he be able to look his daughter in the eye and honestly say that he has done everything in his power to give her and all other young people a livable future? As we know in Scotland, the value of oil is inversely proportionate to the strength of support for independence. It's a very strange phenomenon. Speaking of strange phenomenons, Andrew Bowie let the cat out of the bag in one of his rare TV interviews. The windfall tax, which we, we now uh, tax oil and gas companies 75% on the profits that they make in the North Sea. That 75% tax has gone towards paying for half of everybody in this country's energy bills mm -hmm. over the past winter. I know that, the, that, that mathematics is a difficult concept and numbers are a difficult concept for the Labour Party. They have spent their non-DOM policy, I think, three times over now. There's only so many times you can actually spend uh, money that's uh, raised mm -hmm. through a tax. We've spent the 75% levied on oil and gas, on supporting everybody in this country over the past winter. We also want to of course incentivise companies to invest and create jobs and maximise economic recovery from the North Sea because oil and gas is important. It will be with us for the next 20 or 30 mm. years. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. And back to Holyrood where there hasn't been that much that's caught my eye this month. Perhaps the new leadership and new ministers are taking some time to get their feet under the table. One thing, though, I'm not happy about, and a couple of bits and pieces ago I mentioned I didn't like the very macho tone of FMQs now that we have three party leaders who are all men. Macho posturing and personal insults. Dross in particular, two weeks in a row, has made attacks on female members of the SNP, which is just nasty. Last week he was making some quite shocking allegations about Jenny Gilruth, and the week before, a really belittling comment that he made about, about Marie Todd. 
these plans are such a mess that his social care minister, Marie Todd, who sat in the chamber just now, said this this week. It's been a little bit hard for me to get my head around. A, a bit hard for the minister in charge to get her head around. First minister, she's talking about your plans. Because before Hamza Yusuf failed upwards, he was not just the health secretary, he was cabinet secretary for social care. He wrote these shambolic plans. So what does it say about the first minister's policy if his own care minister doesn't understand it? There had also just been some polling out showing the relative standing of the three men none of whom are popular with the public. And they were literally using each other's unpopularity as weapons, hurling statistics across the chamber. It just goes to show how desperate Douglas Ross is when he starts with the personal attacks on me or indeed any of my colleagues. Thank you, members. Not on the substance on the personal attacks uh, from a man who is, of course, uh, the least popular uh, elected politician on these islands by any poll estimation in the entire country. Oh, and the best retort Douglas Ross has is I'm, is I'm catching you up. You're still the most unpopular leader, elected politician in this country by quite a country mile uh, presiding uh, of it's really interesting. He didn't want to talk Members. about. He didn't want to talk about poll ratings. He didn't want to talk about poll ratings with me. Oh. Why? Approval rating minus twelve. Oh. Competent twenty-two percent. Incompetent forty percent. Oh. Trustworthy eighteen percent. Untrustworthy forty-two percent. Strong nineteen percent. Weak thirty-nine percent. Doing well nineteen percent. Doing badly forty-four percent. And the best of all. The best of all, better than his predecessor, 9%, worse than his predecessor, 41%. A pay limitation of Nicola Sturgeon. I'm not sure if that's a compliment uh, anymore. It's not on. It's this men behaving badly stuff. I'm going to start switching on to First Minister's questions at half past 12 so they can get all this nonsense out of their system because it's really irritating and it's debasing the politics that we have. I don't want Hoyrood to turn into that kind of adversarial jousting style of politics that you get at Westminster. It's not, not what Holyrood's supposed to be about. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Instead of using stats as weapons, what about using them as sources of information? And John Curtis was interviewed on a podcast called Hollywood Sources a couple of weeks ago. And I thought what he had to say was extremely useful. And yet it just seems to be getting lost in all the aggression. I mean, well, I agree with you, and I regard this as the fundamental failure of Nicola Sturgeon's last six months. It's the failure of the, uh, the SNP and the Scottish Government to start the debate about the economics of independence in a post-Brexit environment. We have to remember the debate about independence is not the same as the debate about independence back in 2014. The debate in 2014 was simply about whether you want to be inside or outside the UK. The debate now is whether you want to be inside the UK but outside the European Union, or do you want to be inside the European Union but outside the UK? And that raises all sorts of trade-offs. For example, which single market do you think it's to your advantage to be a member of? The relatively small single market of the United kingdom but one which is economically more highly integrated or the much bigger single market the european union but one which is less highly integrated answers plead on two on two sides of a four these are quite complicated trade-offs but the point is we have not so far had that debate 
Um, public opinion has caught up with the fact that the choice has changed because there is now a very clear relationship between people's attitudes towards Brexit and uh, their attitudes towards independence. Support for independence, when I was last able to measure this using people's current attitudes, was three times higher amongst those people who want to be, in supply, want to be inside the EU as it is amongst those who want to be outside. Whereas if you go back to 2014, there was no relationship at all between people's attitudes towards the EU and whether they voted yes or no. So the, the electorate have begun to cotton on to the fact that the intellectual question is different. But because of COVID um, and then the great misfortune that the Scottish Government published its white paper on the economics of independence on the very day that Jeremy Hunt was waving the white flag over Quasi Quartine's tax cut, so that didn't get anywhere. They have, and now, of course, they got themselves embroiled in their, in their, in their internal arguments and have uh, done themselves an institution political damage. They're not, not in a good position to pursue that argument. But at the end of the day, what, I mean, again, the argument about a de facto referendum was a complete and utter waste of time. I mean, until recent events, which has seen the SNP start to lose support amongst yes voters, you did not have to say to the electorate that the next election was a de facto referendum. Elections in Scotland had already become de facto referendums. If you look at what happened in the Holyrood election, you're looking at 85 to 90 percent of current yes supporters voting for the SNP and less than 10 percent of current no supporters voting for the SNP, which is a very, very different picture from what happened in 2011 when the SNP got its own overall majority, that was done on the back of the support of two-fifths of those who, had, who were at that stage opposed to independence. So, um, you know, uh, you didn't need to call for a de facto referendum. The way in which the next general election is about independence is about whether or not we end up with a hung parliament in which the SNP might have leverage. That has always been what the next election is about. It's what still what the next election might be about, except that, of course, and this is where things have gone wrong for the SNP. A, the Labour Party is now much further ahead of the Conservatives in the UK-wide polls, which makes a home parliament less likely. And now, of course, because of the rise of Labour, first of all, the Conservatives experience, and now more recently, the SNP experience, Labour do now have a serious chance of picking up a number of seats north of the border. That, again, reduces the chances of, of the SNP having leverage. But in the meantime, the other thing that the Nationalists have to do is very, very clear. Unionists don't want to engage in the debate. They do not want to admit that there is now a new intellectual question facing Scotland. That their response throughout is, well, you said um, a decade ago that this was a once-in-a-generation event, and by the way, we think most people in Scotland don't want a referendum, which, by the way, the polls do not support. But I'll keep on repeating it anyway. What above all, and this is where the penny has dropped correctly on the nationalist side, what the nationalists need to do is to get the debate on independence in the post-Brexit environment started. They have to come up with an intellectually convincing case, um, first of all, and one that then they can sell persuasively so that they can move the dial above the 50% mark. And the crucial thing about doing that is not that necessarily it makes the referendum any closer. But if the support for independence begins to be consistently above 50%, not because of the COVID pandemic, which is what happened in 2020, but because it's clear that those on the S side are beginning to persuade people, unionists will have to enter the debate, because at that point they will be discovering that it's no good simply saying people don't want a referendum, which is never ever going to persuade anybody of the unionist case, and then, you, then we will start to have a debate between the two sides. And in a sense, that's, uh, that's what 
in the first stage, nationalists have to achieve. They have to achieve a debate, a debate that they get the unionists engaged in, and which they then win. After that, you can then worry about process and how you get to that. But until you get to that point, you're wasting your time trying to push for a referendum. The question of whether SNP might have a role to play in a hung parliament was one that confronted Philippa Whitford as well. Starmer appeared to be adamant it was a non-starter, but here's how Philippa dealt with it. No, no deal with the SNP. And I'll tell you for why, because there's a fundamental disagreement. I will never do a deal with a party that thinks that uh, the separation of the United Kingdom is the way forward and putting a border between Scotland and England. I do not believe that that is the way in which the United Kingdom will prosper and we'll never do a deal because of that. Uh, well, obviously, you know, Keir in the last uh, six months or so, I would say, has moved on, which is the new term for U-turns on many other things. So he says one thing now. Ah. He may say something different after the election. Sure, yeah, and things change. John Curtis thinks that in actual fact, the outcome of the local elections is more about Tory collapse than Labour surge. And they're predicting a hung parliament. Now, the message that Keir is sending right now to the party that has won the eight elections that have occurred since the Scottish referendum is unless you Scots vote how we tell you, you will have no voice in this government. You have no place to influence a UK government. That's not really a great signal to send out to protect the so-called precious union. Right. I mean, if that's the case, do you think Philippa's right that actually as we get closer perhaps to a general election or even at the time of a general election that Keir Starmer might change his mind and might indeed think about doing a deal with the SNP if he needs to? He's been very clear, no. So he'd rather let the Tories into number 10 if the Liberal Democrats don't get enough to give him control of the House. He'd rather have the Tories in than even have any kind of relationship with the SNP when well, we have some of the most progressive social policies in the UK and therefore in a lot of things, social justice, there'll be very little disagreement between us. We know there's going to be uh, an SNP conference. I think they're calling it a convention, but I think that's probably the wrong word because the idea of a convention was it would be cross-party or a no-party civic society. But whatever they call it, if there is going to be something in June, we may well be able to report on that next month's bits and pieces. So that's it from this month. Uh, only a couple of weeks left before Parliament. both parliaments break up for the summer. But for now, thanks for listening and we'll catch you later. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a